from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show whose love of history makes everyone uncomfortable. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today we're looking at an anti-love story from the tail end of American Prohibition, the time when one gangster made his feelings known to another in the least romantic way possible. A quick warning, today's episode contains descriptions of gun violence and may be upsetting to some listeners. The day was February 14, 1929. Seven members of Bugs Moran's gang were shot dead at a garage in Chicago. The grisly event, later dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, is believed to have been orchestrated by rival gangster Al Capone. He was never definitively linked to the murders, though, and officially, the crime remains unsolved. During the Prohibition era of the 1920s, large American cities became breeding grounds for organized crime. Gangs of bootleggers would carve up a city between themselves, each operating their own distilleries, speakeasies, brothels, and gambling joints on their respective turf. By the late 1920s, Chicago was home to more gang activity than just about anywhere else in the country. Territory changed hands as different crime bosses rose and fell from power, but in 1929, most of the city was split between two rival factions, Al Capone's gang in the South Side and George Bugs Moran's gang in the North Side. The two lead gangsters had butted heads for years, with both having survived assassination attempts led by the other. In the months leading up to the massacre, Moran began to move against Capone harder than ever. His gang hijacked Capone's shipments of illicit booze, muscled in on his dog track operation, and even killed a few of his allies. In early 1929, Capone had had enough 
and began bankrolling yet another assassination attempt. He hired an associate named Jack Machine Gun McGurn to organize the hit, which was set to take place on the morning of February 14th. The plan was to stage a phony police raid on a warehouse-slash-auto garage where Moran was known to store his liquor and bootlegging trucks. That way, civilians wouldn't think a mob hit was going on next door, and Moran's gang wouldn't open fire on what would appear to be a police force. To ensure the biggest body count possible, Capone's men called Moran the day before the massacre with an offer they knew he wouldn't refuse. They told him that a truckload of whiskey had just come in from Detroit and that he could have it for cheap if he could take possession of it by morning. Moran jumped at the chance and arranged to have the whiskey delivered to his garage on North Clark Street at 10.30 a.m. on Valentine's Day. There, Moran would be waiting with the money for the booze and with a crew big enough to unload it. The following morning, a Cadillac looking very much like a police car pulled up to Moran's garage a little before 11. Five men stepped out of the vehicle, though some witnesses claimed to see six. Two were dressed in police uniforms, and the rest were wearing plain clothes, suits, and overcoats. The men in uniform rushed into the garage and ordered the seven men inside to line up with their faces toward the wall. The bootleggers did as they were told, still assuming they'd been caught up in a routine raid. A minute later, though, the gunmen were joined by their colleagues dressed as civilians, at which point they all drew their guns and opened fire. Their arsenal included two submachine guns, a sawed-off shotgun, and a forty-five pistol. Within moments, all seven men against the wall were dead or dying on the floor, each having been struck by no less than fifteen bullets, mostly in the head and torso. The killers maintained their ruse as they exited the blood-soaked garage. The men in plain clothes walked out first, with their hands in the air, and the two dressed as cops came out behind them with guns drawn. To witnesses, it didn't look like a getaway at all. It just looked like some men were being arrested after a raid. By the time the real police got to the crime scene, only one of the victims was still alive. His name was Frank Hawk Gusenberg and he refused to reveal anything about his assailants. When asked directly who had shot him, the man replied, No one. No one shot me. Three hours later, he died from his injuries. The real target that day was, of course, Bugs Moran himself. In fact, lookouts had made sure that Moran was inside before the gunman moved on the building. However, it later turned out they weren't as sure as they had thought. The person they identified as Bugs Moran was actually one of his men, Albert Weinshank, who just happened to look and dress like his boss. As for the real Moran, he had arrived late to his own meeting, and when he spotted what looked like a police car outside the garage, he assumed it was being raided and stayed away. News of the massacre broke later that day, and Moran was quick to say what everyone else was thinking. Quote, only Capone kills like that. The public and the police were all but certain Capone's gang was responsible, but the crime boss himself had an airtight alibi. He was in Florida at the time, and when he heard Moran's allegation, he turned it around, saying, quote, The only man who kills like that is Bugs Moran. Of course, no one believed Moran had ordered a hit on his own men, 
so Capone remained the only real suspect. However, due to a lack of hard evidence, neither he nor anyone else was ever charged with the crime. It did bring Capone a lot more unwanted attention, though. Federal authorities monitored his every move after the massacre, and two years later, they finally arrested him, not for murder, but for tax evasion. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre didn't kill Bugs Moran, but it did diminish his standing in the criminal underworld and had him looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life. In the end, it wasn't a bullet that did him in. Instead, Moran was arrested years later for a string of small-time robberies in Ohio and then died of lung cancer while serving his sentence. By that point, Al Capone had been dead for 10 years, having died from cardiac arrest a few years after his own release from prison. The massacre had been the last confrontation between the two men's gangs. It remains the most notorious gangster killing of the Prohibition era and the bloodiest valentine in American history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.